Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Welcome to the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys New York City History podcast. And I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. And later in our show, Tom and I will be joined by Audra McDonald, who plays Mrs. Dorothy Scott and co-executive producer and historical consultant, Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. So make sure you stay listening. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, today we're talking about season one, episode four, called A Long Ladder, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Now, last week, we took a closer look at the American dream during the Gilded Age and the popular industries in New York City. This week, we're going to Brooklyn to discuss Peggy's story and to talk about Brooklyn and the Black elite. Before we get to Peggy, we need to catch up on Mr. George Russell because last week's episode of the series ended on a sad note. You know, George had taken his revenge on the city alderman for rescinding a law that would have allowed his new railroad station to be constructed. And as he said, to employ a modern phrase, it's time to face the music. Sadly, Mr. Patrick Morris, with his life and his fortune in shambles, died by suicide. So near the beginning of this week's episode, George sees another alderman, Charles Fane, and tells him that he does feel remorse about the situation. And I wanted to say, I'm very sorry about Patrick Morris, whatever you may think. Don't think anything. Beyond that, it was a sad end to what had been a reasonably decent life. You say it was my fault. No. Mr. Russell, we behaved badly and you punished us, which was fair enough. It was a pity that Morris wasn't equal to the test. This is not a game for weaklings. No, indeed. So you just heard them refer to the club. This is a club that Charles Fane belongs to, but not George Russell. And Tom, you know, offline we've talked about clubs like this existing during the Gilded Age, like the Knickerbocker Club. Mm -hmm. Yep, the Knickerbocker Club, which was formed in the early 1870s by members of another club, the Union Club, which had formed all the way back in the 1830s. Now, to be clear, these elite clubs were made up of wealthy white men, and their clubhouses were usually quite luxurious, with libraries and dining rooms and rooms for lounging about and socializing. I mean, just imagine oversized chairs, fireplaces, waiters, you know, delivering late afternoon drinks. I'm imagining lots of leather and men having lunch. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, a lot of fine dining here. Oscar mentions on the show a few times, actually, that he was just lunching at the Union Club when he ran into so-and-so. It was like your own private restaurant. I'm imagining it to be like a a Soho house. Could you stay there as well? (laughs) Yes, you could, yeah. Some had overnight rooms and you could stay at affiliated clubs when you were traveling to another city. And like you said, yeah, there are many social clubs like this still around today, and members can still do this when traveling. But to be really transported inside one of these clubs at the time, I would recommend reading Edith Wharton's novels. Newland Archer in The Age of Innocence is not only dining at his club, but he's also meeting up before and after the opera in the club. He's sending correspondences. He's spending a lot of time at the club. I remember that from the movie. (laughs) So it is safe to say then that these clubs were for men of a a certain class. Yes, because, of course, most working class men didn't have time to sit around lounging in the library before a leisurely lunch. But by the 1880s, there were many different types of clubs. There were artistic clubs like the Salma Gundy Club. 
some clubs were more political. But in terms of the Union and Knickerbocker clubs, these brought together New York's oldest families. And actually, in the 1870s, in the midst of that big new wave of money coming into the city, 18 members of the Union Club thought that the club's membership had actually become too liberal, like they were taking in anybody. And so that's when they went off then and formed the Knickerbocker Club. Mm, Very exclusive. So it sounds like George would never be allowed in, which is why he's waiting outside in his private cab. Yeah, Yeah, catcalling Charles Fane from the shadows. (laughs) He certainly couldn't go inside uninvited, and nobody was about to invite him in. And were there also clubs for men who were not rich and white. Yeah, there were. Many new social clubs would be formed in the latter part of the 19th century, many by immigrants who had moved to New York from all over the world. And African-Americans, too, had their own clubs and their own organizations as well. Okay, so George Russell is not in the club yet, but he is determined to help his wife Bertha get her foot in the door of high society, which, of course, she desperately wants. So he makes a deal with Charles Fane that he will help him recover the money he's lost as long as Aurora Fane will help Bertha. There's always an angle when it comes to Mr. George Russell. He knows how to spot an opportunity, as does (laughs) Mrs. Russell. I mean... Oh, yes. Also, in this episode, we see poor Aunt Ada's dog, Pumpkin. Alicia, we finally get to talk about Pumpkin. Finally. We see Pumpkin get spooked by a horse who's kind of going berserk, and then the dog disappears before getting rescued by Gladys and Mrs. Bruce. And Pumpkin is looking pathetic, by the way, on the sidewalk. And of course, Bertha doesn't just return the dog. She uses poor little Pumpkin to force a neighborly visit. Although she is no match for Aunt Agnes. No, because Aunt Agnes, as we have seen, can sniff out an opportunist. We don't even need to talk about poor Mr. Eckert, you know, who was after Aunt Ada in the last show. (laughs) I mean, that guy, he was a nervous wreck when he sort of stumbled out of their house. Yeah. Well, she can certainly see through Bertha Russell's plan with poor little Pumpkin. Agnes says, I do not want this mutt to be a link between both houses. Pumpkin is not a mutt. I know. That was a bit harsh. I mean, Ada was sitting right there. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, probably my favorite Agnes line in the entire episode was, you survive a civil war, yet you collapse because a lapdog is missing? Pull yourself together. (laughs) I was just so glad that he was found. Anyway, let's shift over to Peggy because she's excited. She has another meeting with a newspaper about her stories, this time the New York Globe instead of the Christian Advocate. And she tells Marion about it outside of Bloomingdale Brothers. The editor's name is T. Thomas Fortune. He's asked me to come by his office to discuss writing for the New York Globe. Peggy, how exciting. Why didn't you say before now? I didn't know before now. I sent him my story, but I got no answer. And I I suppose I was trying to break some sort of mold at the advocate. But Mr. Fortune is a trailblazer. So you could be a published writer in no time at all. Oh, let's go in. Why, do you need anything? Not particularly. Then let's not. Please, I just can't get over the shops in New York. We had nothing like them in Doylestown, I can assure you. So we hear Peggy's trepidation about entering the store, but Marion seems very excited to shop at Bloomingdale's, or I should say Bloomingdale Brothers, according to the sign on the door. So who were they? The Bloomingdale Brothers, and they were brothers, Lyman and Joseph, opened a women's store down on the Lower East Side in the 1860s, but moved uptown in the early 1870s, opening what was called the Great East Side Bazaar at 56 and 3rd Avenue. So just a few blocks from where it is today. And we see that Peggy is reluctant to go inside. Marion is not. She seems quite blind to Peggy's discomfort. I mean, I guess she hasn't ever had to feel that way herself. Because although the law at the time stated that black people were free and equal, they obviously had to deal with this kind of discrimination on a daily basis. Fortunately, a few scenes later, we see Peggy in a friendlier environment the offices of the New York Globe, yes, which was an African-American newspaper where she's being introduced to its editor, T. Thomas Fortune. This is Peggy Scott, a new writer. George Park. Now don't worry. We'll get the subscriptions. 
but not by kowtowing to the Republican Party. A lot of colored people still believe in them. Remember, Lincoln was a Republican. Which is why we must expose their shortcomings and demand more. <laughs> have you ever thought about writing anything political, Miss Scott? I have. Don't ask her if she's a Republican. Well, why should I align myself with either party when I don't have the right to vote? I'm publishing the story you submitted next week, and I want you to write something about that, too. Just like that, Peggy's got an assignment. So I know that the New York Globe actually existed, but what about Mr. Fortune? Yes, T. Thomas Fortune was a prominent editor and journalist and publisher who had moved to New York City by the late 1870s. Wait, can I just say that I love the way this show incorporates real-life people into the story as well? It's not just fictional characters. Oh, totally. Yeah, and I hope that it inspires some people then to look into their stories. Fortune here had been born into slavery in Florida in 1856, but during the Reconstruction period, after the Civil War, he was free to study, and he learned the printing and the newspaper business, and he moved to New York. And then edited The Globe? Yes, at first it was called The Rumor, but it would soon become The Globe. And a few years after our story, he would start another newspaper, which would become The New York Age, which was probably the most important African-American newspaper in the country. So in that clip, Mr. Fortune is giving Peggy her first big assignment, as you said, and, and he says that he wants something more political from her after she states, why should I associate with any party without the right to vote? So the 19th Amendment, which gave all American women the right to vote, wasn't ratified until 1920. But here in the 1880s, African-American men couldn't always vote, even though they were legally allowed. Yeah, this is an important point to make. I mentioned that the Reconstruction period followed the Civil War and lasted up until 1877. Slavery had been abolished by the 13th Amendment, and formerly enslaved people were now considered American citizens, at least they were supposed to be. And under the 15th Amendment, which was passed in 1870, black men were also granted the right to vote. But by 1882 here, the Reconstruction era was over, and many new state laws had been passed throughout the South that made it almost impossible for black men to vote. So in much of the South, they were now being denied their constitutional right to vote. I've got so much to learn about this because in the clip we heard that there were black people who believed in the Republican mm -hmm. Party and that President Lincoln was a Republican. Mm -hmm. So do you have any idea of, of what the feeling was amongst African Americans towards the Republicans versus the Democrats? Well, at the time, the vast majority of African Americans were Republicans because they were the party of Lincoln and they'd been in charge of Congress when they pushed through these new progressive amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. However, by 1882, many were also getting frustrated with the Republican Party, which had largely abandoned its earlier commitments to African Americans in the South. Was Reconstruction actually successful in the end? So that has been hotly debated basically since 1877. In the sense that these three amendments were passed, yes, but the period was really messy, it was violent. Actually, federal troops were stationed in the South to try to enforce these new rights. And yes, during the years of Reconstruction, black men did vote, and they managed to elect hundreds of African Americans to local and state offices, many to Congress, including two senators. But it was a very fraught and dangerous situation, and so, when the last federal troops were pulled out of the South by President Hayes in 1877, Reconstruction was over and voter suppression and intimidation became the norm throughout the South. Yeah, and the fight for voting rights continue to this day. And so now we understand why Mr. Fortune was so impressed with Peggy and why he wants her to write an article that is more political. Definitely. And later we see Peggy sharing this news with Marion as Aunt Agnes walks in. Yeah, I was actually surprised to see that even Aunt Agnes cracks a smile when she hears the news. <laughs> she was happy. She was smiling. I mean, at least on the inside. <laughs> because as she reminds us, Alicia, 
I haven't been thrilled since 1865. <laughs> Another amazing Agnes line. And by the way, it's also a reference to the end of the Civil War and to the you know, yeah. celebratory mood that dominated the North. Well, speaking of being thrilled, good segue, <laughs> I want to go back to the Bloomingdale mm -hmm. scene where Marion was excited to see Mrs. Chamberlain because Mrs. Chamberlain also cautions Marion against allowing it to seem like they were on this planned shopping trip together. Right. Even if Marion is happy to speak to her, it seems like Mrs. Chamberlain is actually watching out for Marion's reputation. Well, speaking of uh, scandalous, how's this for a segue? Let's talk about Turner sneaking oh. into George Russell's bed. Oof. I was covering my eyes, hoping it would end. <laughs> Well, she's certainly bold and she's definitely made several references to the fact that she doesn't want to remain a lady's maid, that she has bigger plans for herself. And, you know, she tells George that she wants to make a sanctuary for him, a temple to his greatness. Uh -huh. But I have to say, I don't really believe her. I think she just wants to be Mrs. Russell II. That's not going to happen. No. George makes that clear from the moment that he hops out of bed and insists <laughs> that they will never mention this again. Yeah, but I imagine that this sort of thing did happen back then. Servants having affairs with the masters of the house or marrying up. I mean, surely there were some shenanigans, but did she really think that she could replace Bertha? I mean, really? Um, never. <laughs> <laughs> a lady's maid would not normally even interact with the master of the house. So it's it's really crazy that Turner approached George Russell right in the hallway in the previous episode. But here, sneaking into his bed, it's just like off the charts. Yeah, getting naked too. I mean, it's outrageous. <laughs> well, there is much more that happens in this episode, uh, including Aurora Fane making nice with Bertha Russell and inviting her to a lunch with Ward McAllister and a night at the Academy of Music, which is really lovely. Yeah, we finally get to see what the inside of the old Academy of Music mm -hmm. looks like with the Fanes and Bertha, Marion, oh, and Tom Rakes. Yeah, funny how he just popped up there in the next box. Yeah, I mean, it was almost as surprising as Marion showing up at Peggy's <laughs> house, well, almost. Slightly less awkward. Slightly. Yeah, <laughs> true. But meanwhile, back across the road at the Van Rynes, Marion tells Aunt Agnes, Aunt Ada and Oscar that she's planning to visit Peggy at her parents' house in Brooklyn. So let's talk about Brooklyn. What was it like at this time? Well, here in 1882, Brooklyn was not, as Agnes might have you believe, some, you know, godforsaken backwater. It was, it was a city of more than half a million people. And it was its own city. It would consolidate into New York City at the end of the century. But it was booming. And by now, it was also quite mixed ethnically and even racially. By the 1890 census, there would be about 10,000 black people living in Brooklyn. So, I mean, it's a fraction of the population, but there were communities of color here. Yeah, we've both been reading this amazing book. I mean, thanks to your recommendation. It's called Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City by Carla Peterson. And she points out that Manhattan's black population was much larger than Brooklyn's, despite the terrible Civil War draft riots, which was a big reason that some black New Yorkers moved to Brooklyn to be part of a, a closer community and also just not to be reminded of the horrific violence that had happened. Yeah, and the Civil War draft riots took place in July of 1863. And during these riots, white gangs, most of them Irish immigrants, raged in the streets for days, attacking and injuring thousands of black people. This had been sparked by the newly imposed military draft, which allowed for the rich to buy their way out of military service. But it was also prompted, I think, by a common fear that black Americans, once, once they were free, would be stealing their jobs. And this was even a sentiment that we heard Bridget utter in the Van Rynes kitchen in the very first episode. At least 100 people would die in these riots. And afterwards, many black New Yorkers moved away. Some left New York, including some who moved to Brooklyn. 
And as Carla Peterson writes in her book, Living in Brooklyn allowed black families to move freely between each other's houses and black children to walk safely to school. But that doesn't mean that Brooklyn was completely devoid of racism. No. Peterson points out that, in fact, there was plenty of violence against black people in Brooklyn, too. And I will just point out that when I talk about the draft riots or New York during the Civil War, many listeners are surprised to hear that New York wasn't always, you know, this liberal and progressive city that it at least aims to be today. Wait, so there there were New Yorkers who were pro-slavery? Especially early on. The city was divided. This helps you understand some of the concerns then that Peggy's parents have. There was one small moment in this episode that really struck me. It was when Arthur was telling a story about his uncle's table manners Mm -hmm. and then Dorothy asked what happened to him and Arthur said he was sold before emancipation, which of course only happened in 1863. Yeah, that was pretty intense because he goes from laughing through the story, you know, very lighthearted to this tragic ending in one sentence. And you're really reminded that the experience of slavery was still very recent. It wasn't ancient history. Yeah, absolutely. And when Peggy shares her good news about the New York Globe, Dorothy is happy for her and she wants to toast the published author, but Arthur is less pleased. Are you going to quit working at that house? Of course not. I've only sold one story. Besides, I like it there. We must be pretty bad for you to choose to work two jobs and live like a servant when you can stay in your own home and work in a drugstore with you. Father, it's what I want to do. I own the pharmacy, which I plan to pass down to you. But oh, no. We... Ellen. Let's toast Peggy's success. She will be a published author. It's a fool's errand, if you ask me. So going back to Peterson's book, Black Gotham, she really focuses on the black professional class at the time, the the black elite of the day, because she's tracing her own ancestors um, back and discovering their story. Yeah, it's fascinating because they were part of the Black elite, as are the fictitious Scott family. And many members of the Black elite were pharmacists, like Mr. Scott, or they had other important professional jobs. Right. And to be clear, most African-American New Yorkers were not in this professional class in the 1880s. Most were laborers working on construction projects, working as domestic workers in factories, stores, kitchens, whatever. But there was an elite. They had their own clubs, churches, like St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Manhattan, even their own society pages in the black press. And it's amazing, as Peterson points out, that that story has been somewhat forgotten or even erased. Yeah, so often in movies and TV shows, we see these stories about slavery, but not at all about the black elite. It's also not taught in schools. You know, this is complicated. This doesn't fit neatly into the narrative that we all learn. And that's the case now. So it was certainly the case in 1882 when the character of Marion heads off in a moment of charity um, (laughs) to pay a surprise visit to Peggy at her home. What are you doing here? And the shoes, what was that? Because we're colored, we must be poor. I loaned you train fare. I made a stupid assumption. (laughs) And you just showed up at my parents' home. What's so wrong about that? My aunt lets you live at her house. Lex me. I work there. I know. No, you don't know anything about me, about my life, about my situation. I live in a different country from the one you know. Look, I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Just stop thinking you're really my friend. Yeah, she's right. Marion really has no idea what Peggy's life is really like. Yeah, for me, the scene where Marion shows up uninvited and the whole boots thing, it stopped me in my tracks. I mean, it's it's powerful, I think, because perhaps it's embarrassing. Everybody's embarrassed. Mm. It's well-intentioned. 
but you also see how clueless Marion is and how completely ignorant she is, you know, of who Peggy is. Yeah, I mean, she does mean well, but she's completely assumed that because Peggy is black, she must be poor. Yeah, and meanwhile, Peggy is a member of the black elite. Yes. It's actually Marion who's the recipient of charity here. Her aunts have taken her in because she's the one who's penniless. Yes. I mean, I love it. I love how they flip the story. I think it might even catch many in the audience to re-examine their own assumptions about Peggy's circumstances. Peggy's family is loaded. And why is anybody surprised? I mean, I do like Marion, but it was also just rude that she was calling in on the Scots uninvited during luncheon as if Peggy needed some kind of saving from her own family. It was just a series of blunders. Peggy ends up leaving with Marion, although she is not happy. No, and as we heard in that clip, Peggy makes it clear they are not friends. Which is rough, and Marion seems really shocked. They do live in different countries. In a moment, we'll be joined by Audra McDonald, who portrays Dorothy Scott, Peggy's mother, on the show, and go deeper into Gilded Age history with co-executive producer Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. So exciting. And they will be with us right after this. You're listening to the official Gilded Age podcast. Don't go anywhere. Well, we have certainly taken a step forward today. Thank you. Dorothy, our responsibility is to raise a child with a sense of right and wrong. I cannot put that aside to play happy families. No. And it's not a game we are very well equipped for, is it? That was Dorothy Scott talking to her husband, Arthur, after Peggy leaves her house before they could even eat Dorothy's birthday cake. Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast. I'm Alicia Malone, joined by my co-host Tom Myers and two special guests from the Gilded Age, Audra McDonald, who plays Dorothy Scott, and Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, a professor, co-executive producer, and historical consultant for the show. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. So good to be with you. Audra, I probably don't need to remind our listeners that you are a record-breaking six-time Tony Award winner, an Emmy Award winner, and a Grammy Award winner. So I imagine that many projects are presented to you. What was it about the Gilded Age that made it attractive to you as a project? Um, well, I, I was a huge fan of Downton Abbey. I love, I love period dramas. I love, I love all of that stuff. I, I get into it, and so I um, was very attracted to the piece based on that and that pedigree and Jubelos and me being a huge fan. But I have to say, before I read the script, when I first heard about it and that there was going to be black characters on it, I was a little nervous about that, and I thought, well. Mm -hmm. How are they going to be portrayed? Or, you know, what are we showing here? I just didn't want to be a part of perpetuating any stereotype. You know, I, I didn't really want to do that. And so I was stunned when I read the scene, mm -hmm. uh, when I read the script and I read that scene. The first scene I read was the luncheon scene, the birthday luncheon. And I was thrilled. I was thrilled. I was thrilled that this was going to be as deep of a dive as it could possibly be, that we were going to see all different types and aspects of life and Black life uh, during that period, and that it wasn't just going to be the usual um, as far as how Black people are portrayed. That excited me. So, you know, I jumped right on. And then especially when I heard about Sally Richardson Whitfield being one of the executive producer, and then I got a chance to meet Professor Dunbar, and, and I was very excited there was going to be Black voices not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera as well, and I, knowing how important that was going to be. So I jumped in wholeheartedly after that. Yeah, so true. And then also, I mean, it's an amazing cast, too. I was well without that goes was, without saying. I mean, and it's like every friend I've ever had. <laughs> well, I was yeah. gonna I was gonna ask you about that because I just didn't know how many <laughs> other Broadway productions or how many Broadway productions you've done with your fellow Gilded Age cast members. I was trying to count them, and it was 
pretty impossible. It's crazy. I, mean, I have a list. Yeah, here. if I haven't done a show with them, I I'm they're my buddies, or I've known them for forever, and I feel like I've done shows with. I certainly partied with most of the people. In the cast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, me and my my little my incredible running buddy Christine Baranski. You know, running back and forth between mm-hmm. the two shows this past season. You right. know, when she would disappear from the good fight, she was in a corset, and I was holding it down at the good fight. And then I'd disappear for a while and be like, "How was the corset? How was the corset?" So yeah. It's a it's a thrill. That part of it is a, an absolute thrill. I was reading one journalist recently wrote that he's hoping for a musical version of the Gilded Age with the same cast. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could do it. Yeah. I mean, if ever there was a cast that could do it, this would be because it. You, you and know. Danae Benton could just sing to each other, mother Absolutely. daughter. Absolutely. I know. I you know, and Danae, I just I think such an incredible talent, and I was a, a big fan and very excited to watch her her star starting to rise. So before I was ever involved with this project, when I heard that she had been cast. I was thrilled for her and had my fingers crossed that it was going to be Mm. something worthy of her talent. And so I'm just thrilled that I get to be a part of it and especially to play her mama. I love that. And I am waiting for the day where she and I get to sing a duet. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to see that. And Audra, as we heard in the clip, Dorothy is caught between her daughter Peggy and her husband Arthur, but she definitely holds her own. So what did you appreciate in particular about the character of Dorothy? Well, you know, (laughs) what I like about what the Gilded Age is showing and doing is the wealth and and the power that the men have, but you're seeing that more of the power and, and the strength and the ambition and the way things, how they're moved about and how, you know, chess pieces are moved within this society, you see that it's the women in the background that are actually doing all of the maneuvering and the moving and influencing and whatnot. And so what I like is that you see that as well. And that's just, I think that's just history (laughs) in general, but you see that as well within the Scott family, that Dorothy is very much trying to maneuver to get her daughter back home and back into the good graces and get back into the black society that her mother feels she belongs. And at the same time, also very proud of Peggy for sort of stepping out And she can see that she's going to be a different kind of woman. And that a lot of that has to do with the incredible strides that, that, you know, previous generations had made. And I think there's a part of Dorothy that's very proud of that. But at the same time, she knows she needs to protect her and also understands the reality of the world that while Peggy is dreaming big and she wants her to, that there is a reality that exists, especially with black women in this particular day and age. And so Dorothy is trying to protect her and get her set up and as and as safe as she can, because that's what a mother wants to do. Mm-hmm. So that that whole luncheon scene, she's just trying to keep the peace and trying to keep them both in the same room at the same time without any sort of blow up. I mean, I think the last thing she expected was that Miss Brooke would come <laughs> just blow it up. I think she thought she was doing well. And then, yeah. then Mary yeah. comes and just blows the whole thing to smithereens. We're going to get to that blow up in a yes. second here. <laughs> Dr. Dunbar, turning to you for a second, as we mentioned earlier, you're a history professor and also a historical consultant on the Gilded Age. I'm curious, as an academic, what drew you to work in projects like this in TV projects and film projects? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, although academics will probably tell you this is something they would never do. Um, this was, of course, an opportunity that I couldn't sort of let slip by, in part because as an academic, I and, and others, we write for other mm-hmm. academics and we world make and we we're storytellers and what better platform to be able to engage in kind of authentic world making than television it's clearly going to reach more eyeballs it's clearly going to be in some ways more impactful when we think about the popular imagination and the ways in which this specific time period, the characters who are involved, could actually open up doors for new conversations about groups of people that really aren't well known. And so the opportunity to talk about the Black elite or Black middle class in the late 19th century on television, that was, you, you know, that they had me at, at that. It was sort of like, okay, here's an opportunity to do something that really hasn't been done and to make certain, to help make certain that it was done in a kind of authentic way 
nuanced and dignified way. So what does your role involve? Is it a lot of talking to the writers and talking to Julian Fellows and consulting on the actual history? Yeah, no, I I had the opportunity to kind of do all of it from reading scripts and making notes and talking with Julian and the entire creative team to interacting with the actors. And we have to remember that the majority of the characters are fictional, not all, but to be able to kind of help the actors sort of think about their roles, their characters. And then from, from that to being on set, you know, whispering in, in ears about what may or may not have been sort of authentic looking. So it really kind of ran the gamut. And I'll, you know, I'll preface it by saying I started as a historical consultant and then my role kind of evolved over time. And in a lot of ways, I sort of feel like that's what happened with the Scott, the Peggy Scott and Scott family storyline and a testament to really the the commitment of the creative team to do so much with the Scott storyline. Yeah, because you're also the co-executive producer on The Gilded Age. And I know that Peggy Scott storyline was one in particular that you worked on. Yeah. And, you know, when when my academic friends are reading the interviews and stuff now and they're like, you're a what? A co-what? How what? <laughs> we don't do that. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's totally weird and crazy and a, a total bunch of fun, to be perfectly honest. But yeah, you know, I've worked in documentaries and other kinds of television, but this is the first time it was really a, a kind of series that would have a strong story line about Black life. And that's in part the reason why the creative team reached out to me in the beginning. I'm an academic who focuses on Black women in the 19th century. And as a scholar, it sort of made sense to have someone there to make certain that we were trying to get it as right as possible, understanding that it's, you know, fictional world, making certain that what we portrayed was varied and rich. And so it's really, it's just been an honor to be able to be a part of this production. Eric, I don't know if you remember that first conversation that we had on Zoom. I felt so, I had a great conversation after, you know, they expressed interest and I expressed interest back and you kind of have that first date. And of course, during (laughs) the pandemic, it's all via Zoom and talking to the creatives and the producers was really helpful. But having Erica there and having her voice there was everything for me. Because I thought, wow, because I'm going to be honest, this is not even an era that I know all that much about. Mm. A lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, the people that want to are detractors and want to say, oh, please, black elite, whatever. That didn't happen. That didn't exist. You guys are just trying to be politically correct about this. Like, no, this actually Mm-hmm. These people did exist. These areas in New York did exist. A lot went on during Reconstruction, even though it was a short amount of time before everything got ripped away with Plessy versus Ferguson. But there was so much advancement. If you look at the time period, the short amount of time from emancipation to Plessy ver- versus Ferguson, what's that like? Mm-hmm. We're talking what? How many years, Erica? Is it like? Well, Plessy was in 1896. Now, yeah, so. so such a short amount of time. Yeah. Some of the leaps and bounds that formerly enslaved people made in, during that time was incredible. You know, we sort of touch on that with Arthur. This is someone who, who was formerly enslaved. And look at where he is now. Mm-hmm. These people existed. And to be a part of bringing that history, even though in this fictional world, to life... I think is is not only an honor, but it's it's necessary. You know, it's 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 mm-hmm. we're educating people here. Yeah. And if even if it makes people say, what, really? And then turn to their history books and go, oh, so it is there. And then look at the, the maps of New York in the late 1800s and say, oh, that that is an area where black people lived and that. Oh, and there was this person and. We had, I think, one of the lieutenant governors of Louisiana mm-hmm. was a black man during that time. You know, so this history is important to know. And so to be a part of telling it in this way, I think is, I mean, aside from being a ball, is is necessary. It's necessary. Can I just add yeah. that I, I feel like one of the things the Gilded Age does that nobody else has really done is to capture a, a moment in time There's this kind of Mm -hmm. void when we think about the descriptions of Black people. 
on television. It's sort of like you have the Civil War and the end of slavery, and then maybe you have the Harlem Renaissance, right? right? Like there's this huge kind of swath of time that's almost unaccounted for. And as Audra said, to be able to focus Mm -hmm. on something that's perhaps unexpected, this idea of a middle class Mm -hmm. or, or black elite family, really also gives viewers, I think, the opportunity to think about black wealth in a way that mm-hmm. is palpable and resonates today. Some of the issues that the Scott family confronts, the fragility of Black wealth at a moment in time in which there is a huge kind of expansion of the 1%. There's still the 1%, but they're new 1%ers, right? And so in many ways, they're, they're like two major stories that are happening about wealth What does that mean for Black America? And what does that mean for white America? And those are two very different stories that I'm I'm thrilled that we have the opportunity to talk about. And why do you think that that topic of the Black elite seems to be so overlooked? Why is there this kind of jump in the history books from emancipation up to the Harlem Renaissance? Why? Part of this has to do with who's writing history. Mm-hmm. and what stories are chosen to be either printed or film and television. And the story that doesn't have a major war <laughs> or a major um, kind of event, if you will, happening, say like a renaissance in the arts and, and literature world, those years kind of get compressed. It's almost, it's the story of what happens after Reconstruction, that, mm-hmm. you know, the Civil War's over, these amendments were passed to the Constitution that ended slavery, that supposedly gave equal protection under the law, that supposedly confirmed voting rights, all things mm-hmm. that we are talking about in 2022, right? Mm-hmm. When all of these things were sort of said and done, there was a sort of quick amnesia about those issues. And it's sort of, okay, on to the next, let's go build more railroads. Mm -hmm. Let's go think about steel. Let's think about um, the opulence that comes with this era known as the Gilded Age. So when we teach this era, oftentimes in a kind of traditional U.S. history class, it's referred to as the Gilded Era. I never call it the Gilded Age because I'm trained as an African-Americanist. And for us, That's the beginning of the kind of nadir in race relations. It's the moment in which lynchings become well-known and prominent across the South. It's a moment where the possibilities of reconstruction all kind of dissipate. And Mm -hmm. I think it's for those reasons that we haven't seen this kind of story appear before. Yeah, do you think it's also because it challenges our own ideas? I mean, much like the shoe incident with Marion, she had so many assumptions about Peggy's life. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the wait. There's a black middle class. There's a mm-hmm. there are people yeah. black people with money. Wait, what? How? Where? And so for both of these families, and I'll use the characters of Peggy and Marion, they are walking in different worlds. They would, you know, Mm -hmm. while Peggy was expected to know Marion's life and the way she would move through the world, Marion would never have to do that. And so there's a brilliance here, I think, where we get to see those assumptions exposed because of lack of exposure and contact. I think the one other wonderful thing with the way that Julian Fellows has has written the show is that you're seeing so many of the parallels just in family life. I mean, you see what's going on, you know, with Marion and her aunts Mm -hmm. and the way that they are trying to manipulate her to lead a a specific life. You cross over into what's going on in Peggy's world and the exact same thing is happening. You know, I mean, maybe it's culturally different, but it's the exact same thing that's happening. So you're starting to understand that family dynamics are family dynamics wherever you go, you Mm -hmm. know. And I I do like the way that, that they're rolling out the story so that you see the parallels. Similarities, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That scene with the boots, if we could just talk about that for a second. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's so incredible. It's like sculpted, right? The whole setup is so surprising. It gets incredibly awkward. It's insulting in ways, right? Yeah. Um, and in a way, I almost feel like it turns the tables a bit on a, p- a big part of the audience. I mean, as a viewer, you can also be forced to sort of examine your own preconceived ideas of who Peggy Scott was before we got to her house. I mean, there's there's quite a lot in there. 
Yeah, it's almost as if the audience is let in and are facing their own awkwardness by themselves. Yeah. And then Marion walks in and they almost want to say, girl, stop, stop. <laughs> You're about to make this. Because Don't we just, open the bag. Because we just made that mistake. We mm -hmm. as an audience just made that mistake. And then we were led into the scene and starting to see the world that Peggy comes from and then Marion comes in. So I think it's very smart the way that the scene is constructed. And also what's wonderful about it is you've got Marion walking into black space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and she is all of a sudden falling under black gaze, mm -hmm. which happens for black people under white gaze and in white space on a daily and hourly basis, especially in this world. And when they would come in and come out of this world, if they were servants or, you know, domestics or, you know, mm -hmm. Pullman porters, whatever. So now to have Marion put in that, I think, is brilliant. And and, mm. and rare. And it's and the audience then walks into black space in that moment. And it's I it, think it's, it's like when Peggy was in Bloomingdale's. Yes. And and everybody was staring at her and, and you felt that. Yes. Yeah. And Marion didn't understand. Right. And at Peggy all. knew. Peggy knew going into Bloomingdale's that she'd have that experience. And mm -hmm. actually in some ways was she was not disarmed by it because she knew what to expect going in there. And I'm sure if Peggy had walked in and not gotten those stairs, she would have been like, What happened? that mm -hmm. something's wrong. It shouldn't have been that. But yep. the fact that she knows very well what to expect in white space and Marion had no clue. Uh, why would she? Yeah, you've crossed a line. Yeah, Dr. Dunbar, can you tell us about that scene in particular and, and what it says to you about this time? Yeah, I mean, the scene is brilliant. It's what, I think it's one of the most poignant and awkward moments. I think that, what was so powerful to me is that for most of the episodes prior to this one, we are, Peggy is alone in a very white world, you mm -hmm. know, with very few exceptions. When she is looking for employment in, in a specific place or whether she's in the Brook home, whether she's at Bloomingdale's, you know, she is the only one. And this is a moment where the tables are completely turned. And it's the moment that, once again, is relatable. You know, when you bring your white friend to the Black Student Union meeting <laughs> or the, you know, where, where they are the only one and therefore their entitlement is checked, right? And I think in addition to learning something about Peggy and her family, viewers learn something about Marion that while she is still attempting to create an authentic relationship with Peggy, that she has her blind spots mm -hmm. and that she's walking in a space of entitlement, that although she's a woman and checked by, by gender norms of the time, that she's still someone who has a position of power and entitlement that Peggy will never hold. And I think that's a sort of a powerful moment for us to walk in on in the 1880s and one that we can also kind of connect to even today. Yeah, Peggy even says when they're leaving, she says, I covered your train fare. Like, yeah. how did you not yeah. see this? You know, and she's she's so well yeah, dressed. I gave you the money. You didn't have any money. Yeah. I loaned you money to get to your aunts. And and that was a, and I have to sort of give a, a shout out to Sonia Warfield, the writer. That was really that was her. She, her and Julian kind of hashed that out. Just kind of think about all right in that scene mm -hmm. where we have to in the beginning of the show where Marion and Peggy are meeting. How can this be done in a way that's not going to privilege the person that we imagine will be privileged, right, Marion? And so by having Peggy in many ways sort of offer her assistance, she doesn't kind of come forward and just do it quickly, right? She, right. she realizes, and it's her humanity that doesn't allow this woman, young woman, to be stranded, you know, where she, she offers her help. And, and I think that also speaks to this larger storyline, which is that this is about two young women who are coming of age in a different generation than their parents at a moment in which they have some control or at least asserting mm -hmm. themselves in ways that Marion's aunts would never have done in the ways that maybe, you know, Peggy's mother, that Dorothy would never have done. Right? Not overtly. No, not right. Not anyway. Right. Yeah. That's the brilliant kind of generational shift that we see and we get to walk down this path with two women from different worlds. 
Mm. And you made me think of the train scene and the fact that Marion is also in another black space there, too, right? Right. And reminding us that at that time, even in places like Pennsylvania and New York and what have you, that spaces were still very highly segregated, even before the laws actually cemented one thing or another, that Peggy had enough money to buy her not a first class ticket that would allow Marion to hide from men being seated near her or in the smoker car where traditionally white women were not seated. That this in many ways leveled the playing field a bit between Peggy and Marion. We hope viewers understand it as such that this is an intentional because in order for them to have a real friendship, in order for them to get on as though they care about one another, the power dynamics have to be shifted. And that's a hard thing to do in 1880 America when we're talking about race. And so I think this is one of the brilliant ways that Julian and Sonia thought to do that. And just speaking about generations, we hear that Arthur Scott wants Peggy to join the family business. And Dr. Dunbar, I'm just interested to know more about the Black-owned businesses of the time, and in particular, why pharmacies were successful. Yeah, you know, I, when I first met with Julian Fellows, he had read a book that, you know, I had read many times called Black Gotham. And it was a family history. We both read the same <laughs> right. book. Yeah. It's, it's a family history, in part because my friend wrote the book, right? Oh, so that's where, you know, nerds, nerds unite. We, uh, <laughs> we read one another's work. Um, and so Carla Peterson, a professor emeritus from the University of Maryland, wrote this book. And it's a family history. And it, it sort of moves from slavery to freedom in where? Black Gotham in New York. And it's really a story about her ancestors, one of whom, Philip White, was a a very well-known pharmacist and created significant wealth for himself and class status at a moment in time in which Black New Yorkers were attempting to do this. And so to be a pharmacist, not just a pharmacist, but to be a physician or a dentist or take your pick, I'll go back to the issue of segregation, that Black New Yorkers worked and moved and lived in very segregated spaces and required Black dentists, Black physicians, Black teachers, Black schools. Black undertakers. Because they, undertakers <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. is everything. Yeah. And so when we think about where this sort of growing group of the Black middle class in particular, where they're living, they're living in, in lower Manhattan, yes, but really in Brooklyn. And that's where the Scott family is living, right? They're living in places like Williamsburg and Weeksville and Fort Greene. And they're there. Why are they in Brooklyn? And people are like, wait, people are living in Brooklyn in the 1880s and mm -hmm. there's this Black middle class? Yeah, they're there because they ran from the draft riots mm -hmm. of 1863 in which Black men and women were tortured. Mm -hmm. And they went looking for spaces to build communities. So to have someone like Arthur Scott, who's a pharmacist, in many ways, sort of a composite character. Uh, we can think about a Philip White and others who build a thriving Black middle class, Black business class that served a growing community. And by the time we hit the early 20th century, there are over 90,000 Black people living in and around Brooklyn and, and lower Manhattan. Another reason why there's no way to do a Gilded Age show without Black life. That would just simply be inauthentic and really sort of lacking. And so thrilled that we have the opportunity to, to include this sort of important history. Yeah, and build that kind of a backstory into Peggy's whole family. And I'm wondering, Audra, how you built or understood your backstory? Do you construct a backstory as well for your character going into this? Um, to a degree, but I know that they had already constructed quite a bit. They were very specific that while Arthur was formerly enslaved, Dorothy was born free. Mm. And I think that's important. And the Dorothy comes from Maryland. She comes from Baltimore area. For me, whenever I can find sort of inspiration from anything that's already lived or a part of my own family, I will. And I, my mother, even though they were from Virginia, and at one point, Mississippi, they, her family comes from a very middle class, you know, almost black elite. Her father was dean of a, of a university in uh, Lawrenceville, Virginia, and her mother had a master's degree and her grandparents were also very well educated. And so I was able to draw a lot of what I understand about Dorothy from what I was raised with and what my mother and my mother's mother 
were raised with, especially in terms of how black women of the time would certainly police each other on etiquette and morals. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if somebody was going wayward, we have to bring you back into the fold because when you step outside the door, you represent the entire race. Mm -hmm. And we are fighting to make ourselves be seen as actual human beings worthy of being treated equal and worthy of, you know, and all of these things that, that society does not want to view us as. So they, the black women, especially in society, would p- police each other. I think about my grandmother always, you know, don't you need a slip with that <laughs> skirt? You know, won't you? You know, maybe you need a little, I'll never forget the time she's like, maybe you need a little fanny girdle with that. You know, I was like, what are you talking about? Yes. I'm like 14, you know. <laughs> but you're right. This idea of policing or we use this this term like politics of respectability, yes. right? That respectability becomes so very important and a kind of political weapon, if you will, to prove and promote and to lift the race and um, to protect, yeah, to thinking about progress. Every individual Black person represents the entire race. And I'm, I'm not certain that that's not all that true now. You know, it's still it's still an issue. Yes, absolutely. Same for you, Audra, as an actress, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you must have that pressure on you. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just I was listening to a psych, uh, a black psychologist talk about this the other day that the pressure, a lot of pressure for blacks in professional space is you're not only walking in with all of the pressure of everything that your ancestors had to go through so that you could get to where you are, but then you are walking in saying, "I made it in this door. I have to be perfect so that people will be able to come after me. Because if I screw this up, then they won't trust and then they won't hire us again. So the generational sort of like (laughs) and societal trauma and pressure coming from both ends, if you think Mm. about it, is enormous. And I, I think that one of the powerful moments in the show centers on Peggy having to make a similar kind of professional choice mm-hmm. about whether she's willing to write for a specific outlet, a white outlet, and to basically erase herself, to change her name, to pretend to be a white writer. Or... Is she going to gamble that on a smaller outfit, huge for the Black community, but a Black newspaper that wouldn't be able to pay as much, that didn't have the same kind of circulation? And once again, you know, those are the kinds of choices that Black professionals, regardless of your industry, you know, if you're an actor, a writer, hell, a professor, you know, you you make those kinds of decisions and oftentimes confronted with trying to make the best out of a bad situation. Well, and we see how she waits, right? When she goes to the Christian Christian advocate. The Christian advocate. Right, Mm -hmm. and she has to sit there again in a white space, completely uncomfortable, waits until the end of the day, and then ultimately, you know, is presented with a terrible offer. And we also see how she is struggling with this, and also her father is struggling with it, and her mother is just... I guess, trying to balance these two figures and keep peace at the same time, support her daughter? Yeah, we'll support them both. I mean, this obviously she loves them both dearly and and family is everything to her. And and that's also, I mean, there's a legacy that she's trying to protect as well. And, you know, she wants Peggy to be able to be married and have children that will live in a hopefully uh, racially a better place and a better society and, you know, in the way that all the generations before her were trying to do. Mm -hmm. So all of that, again, is just to protect her daughter and to protect their family and to sustain their family and to ensure their family's existence in the future. Mm -hmm. Like the one scene where Dorothy goes to the Brooks house to speak to Mm. Peggy and ends up running into Marion. And so Mm -hmm. Dorothy kind of plants a seed in Marion. I think Dorothy says those things to Marion about how Peggy needs to be at home. She needs this, that, the other. Not just because, Marion, I think you should know this, but she sees that Peggy has some trust in Marion and seems to like her in some way. So maybe Marion can get through to her in a way. If I'm not going to be able to do it, and obviously she'll butt heads with her father, maybe Marion can push her. Maybe I can get Marion to see my side. It's all very calculated calculated with love but it's calculated (laughs) (laughs) and i'm you know i'm so glad audra you mentioned the word protection 
I think it's really important to understand that for Peggy to be living in a white home on the Upper East Side, a family that hers did not know, there was so much danger that Black women in particular were very keen to kind of note and to try and control when we think about the kinds of sexual abuse that happened, well, with all women, but specifically with Black women who were either domestics or working in the capacity of a confined home. There were so many unknowns there that aside from protecting one's status or considering that maybe this was beneath her or what have you, and also Dorothy making the decision to kind of show up, you know, that was a total Black mother move, right? Like, <laughs> I'm going to go look, I'm going to go see where my daughter's working, right? I'm going to go check it out because I don't know those people Mm -hmm. and I don't know what's happening that I need to at least lay (laughs) eyes on the building so I know where to go if there's a problem, right? right? But the other piece of this is about protecting uh, Peggy's virtue, Peggy's emotional and physical safety. And that's something that can't be understated at the time for Black women. Yeah. And speaking about Peggy's career, Dr. Dunbar was reading that Danae Benton was actually very uh, instrumental in making sure that Peggy was working for a Black-owned newspaper and not a white newspaper. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things sort of working with Danae has just been uh, dreamy, in part because aside from being just a fantastic actor, she's intentional thoughtful, sort of really also thinking about representation and giving an opportunity once again for for us, for, for the creative team, for the producers to talk about the best way to think about the mouthpiece of the 19th century for Black America. And that was T. Thomas Fortune's newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so when we started batting that idea around, to me, it was very clear that it that we had to integrate someone the T. Thomas Fortune, who was a real person, and to have in much the same way that we have Mrs. Astor present. We have a very real person from the 19th century who meant something to that specific world. T. Thomas Fortune was a name that was recognized by much of Black America, not just in New York and, and the Northeast. And so it was really important, I think, to also um, have Peggy pursue a career that in many ways mirrored what some of the other well-known Black women at the time were attempting to do. When we think about Ida B. Wells, you know, in the 1880s, 1890s, beginning this kind of career of journalism Mm -hmm. and having someone like Peggy walk into that space, I think is once again composite based, sort of thinking about other Black women writers and also gives us access to really one of the most important newspapers of the time. Yeah. And it's amazing to think in some ways that the series is set 140 years ago, because in many ways it feels very modern. And we've even brought up here today some very relevant issues that are present still today. Dr. Dunbar, do you think that we are living in another Gilded Age right now? And and also, do you think that maybe these two worlds that we've been talking about, the world of Peggy and the world of Marion, are they any closer today than they were 140 years ago? I think that there are themes that are pal- very palpable. When we think about the inequitable distribution of wealth, mm-hmm. when we think about segregation and some of this very real issues around racial intimidation and justice, these are issues that were discussed in the newspapers in the 1880s and that we still see on TikTok and social media and the newspapers today. And so I won't say that this is another Gilded Age. I'll say, though, that if you know your history, you're more likely not to repeat its problems, its faults, its trappings. And so hopefully we'll share a little bit of history with our viewers. Audra McDonald and Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bo. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. So, Tom, are you okay there? I know you're a huge fan of Audra McDonald. I've only seen two of her Tony Award-winning performances, but uh, <laughs> that was a dream, Alicia. That was a dream. You held it together well. Phew. So, such a pleasure. Such a pleasure talking to both Audra McDonald and to Dr. Dunbar. 
We've got so much more, folks. We're only on episode four. So please join us again for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast. Next week, we have more interviews with cast and crew. And we'll be talking about the roles that men, women, and servants had during the Gilded Age. Don't forget to watch new episodes of The Gilded Age airing Mondays on HBO and HBO Max. And then tune into our next podcast. See you soon. Bye. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.